This is actually a continuation from this morning. When we considered the, the message of the gospel, uh, we, we looked at that question of what, uh, we talk about this thing called the gospel, we say it's important to preach the gospel, but what exactly is this gospel? And just to review, uh, very briefly summarize, uh, we learned from the scriptures uh, that the, con- the gospel is a message, the content of which is something to this extent, uh, that Jesus Christ, who was the eternal Son of God, became man in the fullest sense possible, and so he was God and man in one person with two natures, that he came as the prophet of God, the word of God himself, revealing God to be heard as the greatest and final authority upon penalty of eternal destruction. He came as a priest, the perfect substitute for sinners, perfectly fulfilling the law of God and standing in the place of sinners to receive the curse of God, that his righteousness might be imputed to sinners and that they be declared guiltless and pardoned, and that he came as a king, as the king of kings and the Lord of lords, raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, set down on the right hand of the throne of God, given all authority over everything that is named, and coming again to judge the world and to take vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel. So we learn that that essentially from the scriptures is the message of the gospel, the content of the message of the gospel. Uh, It's a proclamation of who Christ is and what he has done. Now, Uh, From the scripture references that we read this morning, it was fairly clear that the gospel is not merely a set of truths that we just put out there and they sit out there and isn't that nice. But that it is a message that at the tail end of it, by its very nature, demands a response from the hearer. It's not something interesting to mull over. The right preaching of the gospel culminates in a demand or a command. It requires a response from the hearer. In fact, it so demands a response that anyone who hears the gospel and does not comply with its demand increases his guilt before God. So that the good news becomes, as Paul puts it, a savor of death to those that are perishing. Isn't that remarkable? That this thing that's called the good news, this herald of Jesus Christ, becomes a savor of death to those that are perishing. Now, the idea that the gospel demands a response is not in the least contrary to the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. And that's something that this, uh, this church, because we embrace the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, we need to understand uh, very clearly and particularly. People often, when they, when they come to the knowledge of the doctrines of election and predestination, the sovereignty of God, of the foreordination of God, of God being the determining factor in the salvation of men, it is not in the least unusual for people to suddenly become shackled in their evangelism. If God determines everything, then there's nothing for us to do. In fact, 
it seems almost wrong for us to do anything. But we have to understand that the, the long controversy or debate between what are called Arminianism and Calvinism, or free will and the sovereignty of God, is not necessarily a question of what men must do. It's a question over whether men who are dead in trespasses and sins have in themselves the power to do it. I think that I can say that I embrace the doctrines of sovereign grace as much as anyone in this room or anyone in our church. But I don't have any hesitation to invite men to Christ the way that Jesus himself did or to even command them to come to Christ because that is their obligation before God. And if they're to be saved, they must do it. The difference is that I don't believe they have the power in themselves to do it. That it is the miraculous work of God when a man comes to Christ and embraces Him by faith. When we deny that men are obligated to believe in Christ, obligated to repent, when we deny that the gospel, the right preaching of the gospel, must include a demand upon the hearers, we are teaching a doctrine that has historically been known as hyper-Calvinism. It essentially denies that the gospel should be preached indiscriminately. That, that you can go into a room of people and preach Christ and command them all to repent and believe on the basis of that proclamation. I know of a uh, uh, real incident of a uh, family that had embraced this doctrine. And a friend of ours was talking to the father and he asked him if his son was saved. And the father said, no... We're waiting on him to realize his election. I don't know about you, but that's not in my Bible. We're waiting on him to realize his election. They, they, they weren't going to, to come before him and press upon him the claims of Christ because somehow that would be interfering with the work of God. It really is the same error as Arminianism. Listen to this. The Arminian says, God wouldn't command what a man can't do. So therefore, if God commands a man to repent and believe, he must have the power already to do it. That's basically the doctrine of free will or Arminianism. Well, the hyper-Calvinist says, God wouldn't command a man to do what he can't do, so therefore, he mustn't command him to do it. It's the same exact error looked at from two different ways. On the one hand, he says uh, uh, men must have the power to do it. And on the other hand, he says God doesn't command them to do it. And the truth is right in the middle. For once, being in the center uh, is the right place. God commands a man to do that which he can't do. Because it is the nature of the gospel proclamation. Because, and men can't do it simply because they're dead in trespasses and sins. They're dead men. Nevertheless, 
The Gospel comes and says, Come unto me, all ye that would have life. The Gospel comes and says, God now commands all men everywhere to repent. The Gospel comes and says, The Messiah has come. Believe on Him and inherit life everlasting. You know, in the preaching of Christ and the Apostles, there's not even the shadow of a hesitation to press the claims of Christ upon men and demand that they respond. Do you remember the Gospel of the Kingdom? We heard about that this morning. How the Gospel is called the Gospel of the Kingdom. What did it say? It doesn't say they went forth preaching the Gospel of the Kingdom and how interesting that was and that everybody should kind of think about it. He said they went forth preaching the Gospel of the Kingdom saying... Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. How much more direct can you get than that? That's a command. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Acts 16.31, a Philippian jailer, you all know the story, I'm sure. Paul, Silas in the jail. It's the earthquake, the prison's opened. Uh, they come out, the Philippian jailer says, he's struck. He says, what must I do to be saved? You know, Paul doesn't say, well, you see, you have a problem right there. We need to correct your understanding. You see, really, you're dead in trespasses and sins, and there's actually nothing you can do because you're a dead man. And so, really, you just kind of need to wait around until God saves you. He doesn't even misstep. He says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Amen. So, the idea or the question is not, does the gospel demand a response? Because it does. The question is not, does the true and right preaching of the gospel culminate and call upon the hearers to make a response? Because it does. The question is, what response does the gospel and the right preaching of the gospel call for? And of course, it seems simple at first, doesn't it? Believe. For by grace are you saved through faith. By grace are you saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Uh, Ephesians 2.8, Romans 4.3, Abraham believed God... And it was counted to him for righteousness. Galatians 2. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. So it seems simple enough on the surface of it. The answer... To the question, what must a man do to be saved, is believe. But when we look at it a little closer, we find that this question is a little more complex. It's a little more like what we saw this morning. What's the gospel? Everybody knows what the gospel is. Well, you could have fooled me if you listened to the preaching in most of the pulpits. Evidently, they don't know what the gospel is or they don't care to preach it. Because what we discovered this morning, this proclamation of Christ is nearly absent in all the houses of God in any significant way. And what we'll discover as we look at this is that it's not enough to say that men must have faith or believe if you don't know what that is. 
And so this morning we asked the question, what is the gospel? And I hope we answered it. This evening we asked the question, what is the faith that saves? What is the faith that is called for in the preaching of the gospel that when men exercise it, they're justified of all their sins? We're saved by faith and that alone. But there is a faith that doesn't save. And if we don't know the difference, we're in danger both ourselves and in those we may minister to. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 8, verses 4 through 15. Now, this is a parable that you will all, I trust, be familiar with. It's the parable of the sower. Christ says, or it says, the word says, and when much people were gathered together and were come to him, Christ, out of every city, he spoke by a parable. And this is what he says. A sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell by the wayside and it was trodden down and the fowls of the air devoured it. The birds ate it. And some fell upon a rock, and as soon as it was sprung up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. And other fell on good ground and sprang up and bare fruit a hundredfold. And when he had said these things, he cried, He that has ears to hear, let him hear. And his disciples asked him, saying, What might this parable be? And he said, Unto you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to others in parables, that seeing they might not see and hearing they might not understand. Before we go on there, I would just and, and, and learn the parable, I just want to point out about that verse that Christ explicitly teaches that he is speaking in parables so that certain people won't understand what he's saying. Now isn't that a remarkable thing? Given the modern presentation of Jesus that we normally hear. Here, Christ says, in no uncertain terms, to you it is given to know the secrets of the kingdom, but I'm speaking in parables because there's a certain number of people to whom it's not given to know the secrets of the kingdom. And already we see the mystery of election and predestination. But we'll go on. Now the parable is this, verse 11, the seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are they that hear, and then comes the devil, and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. They on the rock are they which when they hear receive the word with joy, and these have no root, which for a while believe, and in time of temptation fall away. And that which fell among thorns are they which, when they have heard, go forth and are choked with cares and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to perfection. But that on the good ground are they which in an honest and good heart, having heard the word, keep it and bring forth fruit with patience. Now, this is a very interesting parable because we have four sowings of the seed. Three of them believe in some way, shape, or form. They receive the word. One of them, they don't get it. They, it falls on the, the... The devil comes away and steals it. It doesn't even enter into their mind. It's like the person who comes to church and the gospel's being preached and he's sitting over here thinking, 
Now, let's see. Uh, Monday morning, i got a few things to take care of. He doesn't even hear what's going on. This, uh, the devil has stolen away the seed. But you've got three sowings in which people make some kind of response. They receive the word with joy. One of them. The, second one, the third sowing of the seed also receives the word. They've heard and they go forth. And only in that fourth sowing do you have those who are truly saved. So three kinds of believing, but only one that's saving. James 2.19 says, You believe that there's one God? You do well. The demons also believe and tremble. It's almost a comical way of putting it. A sarcastic way of putting it. You believe that there's one God? That's great. You know, by the way, the demons in hell believe in one God too. So, there's a faith, if you will, that's the faith of demons. And we know the demons aren't saved. Acts 26, uh, verses 25 through 27, he says, Paul says, preaching, he says, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but I speak forth the words of truth and soberness, for the king knows of these things, before whom I also speak freely. For I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him, for this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Paul's talking to King Agrippa. He says, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe the prophets. King Agrippa believed the prophets, but he certainly wasn't saved, was he? No manifestation of salvation whatsoever. We'll come back to this, but there can be a kind of what the older writers used to call a historical faith, a faith of history, a belief that these things happened. But it's not saving faith, is it? Matthew seven twenty one through 23 Jesus says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. For many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? In thy name have cast out demons, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. I never knew you. Not I knew you and you screwed up somewhere along the way and I kicked you out. I never knew you. But they prophesied in his name. They were working miracles, many mighty works. So the older authors used to call this the faith of miracles, miraculous faith. But it's not saving. Remember all the crowds that followed Jesus? It says sometimes in the Bible that they heard what he was teaching and they believed. But these were the same crowds we saw this morning that as soon as he didn't fulfill their expectation of an earthly Messiah that would come and throw over the Roman yoke, they with one voice stood in Jerusalem and said, Crucify him! And they threatened to riot if Pilate wouldn't crucify him. They forced Pilate, if you will, to crucify him and to release a murderer. Oh, but they believed. No. no. They believed something. They believed in some way. But it wasn't saving. Remember Simon Magus? Here's the preaching, and, he, and it says he believed. 
And then right after that, he sees, I think it was Peter, uh, 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 doing miraculous works. And, and, and he says, uh, how, how much for the Holy Ghost? That's what he basically says. How much for the Holy Ghost? I'd like to buy that. And Peter says, you have neither part nor lot in this matter because your heart is not right before God. Simon Magus says he believed, but he shortly thereafter demonstrated that it was some other kind of belief. So, it's not such a simple question as we thought it might have been at the beginning, is it? There's a faith that's not saving. So what is true saving faith then? Well, I'll tell you the way the, uh, the, the older confessions put it and the older authors put it. They used, to, uh, they used to describe faith as having three characteristics to it. Knowledge, assent or agreement, and trust. And of course, we're speaking always at this point, of how we respond to the message of the gospel, what we talked about this morning, the preaching of the gospel, the content of that message. Knowledge, assent, and trust. Now let's talk about knowledge first, because that's kind of the first step on the pathway. You have to have a knowledge of the primary facts of the gospel as we delivered them this morning, or in some sort of close approximation, you have to have a knowledge of the primary facts of the gospel, or you, you have another Jesus. I mean, think about this. You could go to a Muslim man, and you could say, do you believe in Christ? Oh yes, I believe in Jesus Christ. But it's wrong, isn't it? Because what he believes is that Jesus was a prophet of God. Which is true enough... But it's not enough. Or, or what, about, uh, what about this New Age thing we have today? Oh, they'll all tell you, do you believe in Jesus? Oh, I believe in Jesus. Oh, yes, Jesus, Jesus was one of, the, one of the great ones. Oh, he, he had ascended to a remarkable level of spiritual discipline. Oh, he, he, was, he was on his way to divinity. Of course, he wasn't quite as high up as maybe Buddha or some of the other folks, but, but, he was, but if you just stick with this deal, do you believe in Jesus? Oh, I believe in Jesus. Oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus Christ. But it's the wrong factual content. It's a different Jesus. So the only revelation of Jesus Christ then is right here, isn't it? It's in the Word of God. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's no other channel to know about Jesus Christ, but, but the record of Scripture and the Gospel is contained in the Word of God. And if we fail to set forth those primary facts of the Gospel the way we talked about this morning, then men are not coming to the Christ of the Scriptures. Because men will fill in the blank with something. You had better believe it. They'll fill in the blank with something. I mean, the, the capacity, the human ingenuity to, 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 to disrupt the gospel and to believe error is, is endless. So men, if you don't give it to them you know, straight, they'll fill in the blank with something. But they won't come to the Christ of the Scriptures, they'll come to the Christ of their own imagination. And you know, the Christ of their own imagination has no more in common 
with the true Christ than that golden calf did with the living God. Because remember, they weren't worshipping another God. They just decided they were going to worship God, the God, kind of how they understood Him. We'd make a calf and we'll worship it and it'll be the worship of God because Moses didn't come back and maybe he's dead. See, they made a God for themselves. So, the scandal of the modern pulpit is that it has truncated the preaching of the gospel. It's, it's shrunk it down to almost nothing. To an empty message that has no facts in it at all. It's just a name. Jesus. Who is Jesus? I don't know who Jesus is. Unless I know who the Jesus in here is. Or worse yet, has altered the message. As we saw this morning by tossing out whatever it doesn't like. Well, you know, we're not so sure about this Jesus being a king thing. So we'll just kind of kick that off. And we'll have Jesus as a priest to save us from our sins. Wrong. We've got a situation today where a man can claim belief in Christ and when you question him, he may barely be able to state one truth accurately about who Jesus is. But he'll be a member of the local Baptist church in good standing because he came down at the invitation and he went through the process. If we alter the gospel, we alter the Christ of the gospel, and men damn themselves that way. Men are deceived into thinking that they have embraced the true Christ when they have never even heard who the true Christ is. And thinking themselves saved, do you know what they become? Twofold over the children of hell than they were before just like the disciples of the Pharisees, because they've been inoculated. It's like getting inoculated against a virus. They've been inoculated against the gospel because they got, uh, you know, they had an experience and they were worried about their salvation and someone handed them a cheap and easy way and they didn't even really know what was going on because they never actually heard who Jesus was. They just heard this name Jesus and they went through some rigmarole And they're no closer to salvation than they were before. They're further away. But here's the problem. Now that we've beat up on not giving all the facts of the gospel, you can have all the facts of the gospel. You can have them all right there in front of you and not be saved. You can have the knowledge but not be saved. Think about Mars Hill when Paul was preaching on Mars Hill in Athens, there were three responses. See, they all heard the message. They all heard what Paul had to say about God and the resurrection. It says some believed, some mocked, they heard it and they rejected it. And some said, you know, this is interesting, we'll hear this man again. We'll hear this man again, this is an interesting teaching. They all had the knowledge. Every last one of them had heard the accurate presentation of Jesus Christ. But they weren't all saved. 
it's worse than that. Men may not even know these facts. They can even study these facts. They can even be able to teach them at a very high level. I tell you that the universities are full of people, full of lost people, who can tell you exactly what the Bible says. Because it's part of their degree program. It's part of their, their, their study of religion. They can tell you about the history of the church. They can probably tell you better than, than I can what the doctrines of the Reformation were. They can tell you what the apostolic confession of faith was. They can tell you what Paul preached. They can tell you what Jesus said about himself. They can tell you all of these things. They have the knowledge, but they don't believe that it's true. It's just an academic matter. It's just a, an interesting thing in history that men once thought this. We have to have the facts, and we have to have all of the facts, and we have to have them right. But having the facts isn't enough. Knowledge, yes, but not just knowledge. In fact, just as an aside, some of you have a background in Roman Catholicism. Uh, you, I don't know if you've ever heard of the doctrine of implicit faith. The Roman Catholic Church actually teaches that you don't even, they don't even get to the knowledge point. You don't even have to have the knowledge. As long as you believe that what the church believes is true. You don't actually have to know what the church believes. It's called implicit faith. You have implicit faith in what the church believes. You're okay. Isn't that neat? Except it doesn't work. You have to have the knowledge, but the knowledge isn't enough. So what is the second thing that these older authors talk about and that I think is quite clearly taught in Scripture? It's called assent, agreement. That means acknowledging these things to be true. If a man rejects the cardinal principal truths of the gospel, he rejects the Christ of the gospel because the gospel is the setting forth of Jesus Christ and it's the only way to him. So if you, if you say this isn't true, then you reject Christ. Now, here's an interesting thing to tell you how deviously Satan works. You won't find a building in this country that has the name church on it where they don't talk about the gospel. This thing called the gospel. The most liberal churches on the face of the earth talk about the gospel. But you know what's interesting? They deny the virgin birth. They deny the deity of Christ. They deny Christ's substitutionary sufferings. They openly deny the resurrection. They deny the lordship of Christ. They deny the very truths that are the message of the gospel. But they say they believe the gospel. Men may say they believe the gospel, but if they don't assent to the actual truths of the gospel, they're lost. But you know what? We're not far enough yet. Because you can know all the facts and you can assent to them as true and not be saved. Because true faith is more than just embracing these things as historical facts. 
See, the churches are full of people like that. They accept the Bible as a record of historical truth. They accept that these things, Jesus did live. These things happened. What the gospel says is true. All of these things are true. The resurrection, the return. But they accept it as a matter of merely historical fact. It has no, it doesn't set into them. It has no impact on them. Uh, this has been a problem, particularly in history in the history of the church when Christianity was respectable when society was predominantly Christian if you will or influenced by Christian thought earlier in the history of this country where everybody would have said they were a Christian you'd go a long way before you found people who just out and out denied what the gospel said about Jesus Christ they embraced it as a historical fact but it didn't change their life any because there's one more thing and this is the real meaning of the Greek word that's translated faith in your Bible. It's the word pistos. And it means actually faith in the sense of trust. It means committing oneself to something or entrusting oneself to something. Uh, all of you, I'm sure, have heard the illustration of the bridge across the, 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 you know, the ravine, that you can see the bridge and you can stand on the other side of it and you can say, yeah, that's a bridge, all right. It goes right across to the other side. Yeah, I agree with that. And, and the person can say, well, do you think it'll hold you? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, it's a good, solid bridge. Yeah, anybody can go across the other side on that bridge. It's a, that's a fine bridge. They, they built it really well. They really knew how to build them in the old days, those good bridges. Are you going across? Oh, no. No. See, he isn't trusting himself to the bridge. He hasn't actually walked out on the bridge to go to the other side. So he accepts it, but it's not personal. Men may know, men may assent to the truth without a work of God in their hearts. But no man commits himself with his whole soul, with total abandon to the gospel apart from divine grace. So then, this faith, this saving faith, is knowledge and assent and trust. But let's get a little more specific and let's say, what does it mean to embrace the gospel with this kind of faith? What does it mean to embrace Christ as a prophet? with knowledge and assent and trust. Well, it's not merely to know that Christ was the great prophet of God or the word of God. It, it's not merely to assent to the fact uh, that he was perfectly revealing the will of the Father to those that heard him. I mean, that's fine. Those are good truths. But to trust yourself to Christ as the prophet is to commit yourself to him as the one whom, when he speaks, he speaks the undeniable truth of God. It is to receive the word of God spoken by Christ as the authoritative message that it is. It is to acknowledge Christ as your teacher, as the word of God that you receive. You see, to claim to receive Christ as a Savior, but to deny His Word, or to ignore His Word. 
How many, how many people in the churches are like that now? Oh, oh yes, I'm a Christian. You read the Bible? Once, yeah, you know. Are they receiving Christ as the prophet? Are they receiving Christ as the teacher? The one whom, if you don't receive His word, you'll be destroyed from among the people? No, they, they hardly know His word. They don't even care about His word. So to, to entrust yourself to Christ as the prophet is to commit yourself to His word. But to deny it or to, or to ignore it or to misuse and abuse His word is to declare openly that you've never received Christ at all. What is it to come to Christ as a priest with knowledge and assent and trust? Well, it's not merely to understand and to acknowledge the great exchange of the just for the unjust on the cross. It's not merely to acknowledge the perfection and fullness of Christ's sacrifice or the completeness of His fulfilling of the law. But to embrace Christ as the high priest is to personally abandon your own filthy righteousness before God. To declare from your heart that you are a sinner. That you have nothing of worth before God. That you're, you're clothed with unrighteousness. That your works, as Paul says, are like dung. And to fly to Christ and to His sacrifice as your only hope. To trust in Him as the all-sufficient one. To betake yourself to Him as your complete Savior, as your only hope before God. You must go to Him yourself. That's to go to Christ with saving faith as a priest. To claim to receive Christ, but to hold out for your own righteousness is to deny Him. To claim to receive Christ, but to maintain there's any good in you in front of the holiness of God is to deny Him. To preserve some belief in the excellence of your own works is to deny Him. Is to deny Him altogether. Jesus Christ is not a self-help program to take the good in us and make it better. There isn't any good in you to be made better. What you need is to be pardoned for all the sin in you. If you're going to be made better, it's after you have received divine grace of regeneration and the Spirit has come in you and you've got the new heart. There's an awful lot of people whose conception of Christ is the conception that He covers up or He takes care of the bit you didn't quite get done. You know, I'm a basically good guy and, 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 and the purpose of the sacrifice of Christ was to kind of take care of the rest of that stuff. And the people who are going to hell, those are the really bad ones. Like Charles Manson. I mean, that's a bad guy. These criminals you see on TV. It's what I, I call, I've told some of you before, America's most wanted religion. Some of you have probably seen America's Most Wanted. On America's Most Wanted, there's two kinds of people. There's really bad criminal types. And then there's all of us good, upstanding, moral citizens. 
And there's a lot of people who have that religion. And the purpose of Christ in their religion is, well, I'm a pretty good person and God wouldn't send me to hell, but I'm not quite good enough to make it to heaven and Jesus took care of that. No. That person's lost. Because they don't even have the remotest understanding of their own sin and of the nature of Christ's sacrifice. You have to turn from your own righteousness and trust Christ with all your heart as your sacrifice for sin. And then, of course, he comes as a king. And here we have real problems today. Because it's not merely to acknowledge that he was raised from the dead or he was ascended and glorified and he's coming back and he's got all power and all of these fine doctrines that are confessed in every conservative evangelical church all over the country. To receive Christ with knowledge, assent, and trust as a king is to abandon your own government of your life. To abandon your own self-determination and self-will and control and to receive Him as the universal Lord that He is. Not as a King, but as your King. You see, a lot of people receive Christ the same way that I received the King of England. Which is, that I know there is a King of England. Or Queen of England. Absolutely. This is Queen, Queen whatever her name is. I can't remember now. Sure. And if, and if she dies, then there'll be King Charles, unless he messes up by marrying again. And then it'll be one of his kids or something like that. Yeah, there's a king of England. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. Does it have any relevance in my life whatsoever? No. Do I care what they think about anything? No. Because I am not a subject of the king of England. But you see, there's a lot of people who treat Jesus Christ just that same way. Oh yeah, Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords. Absolutely. That's nice, nice truth. Yeah. But they haven't abandoned their own self-government. They haven't subjected themselves to His kingdom. They haven't entered the kingdom. They're onlookers who acknowledge the truth of his kingship. But to claim to have received Christ while denying his absolute authority, to claim to receive Christ while admittedly withholding sovereignty for him in some part of your life, is to deny him completely. There's a lot of people who are like that. I'm, I'd love to be saved as long as it doesn't mess with this. Ain't going to happen. You can walk an aisle, you can pray a prayer, you can do whatever you want. You can do it a thousand times a day. Pray the rosary, hail Mary, I don't know. Kiss the Pope. Not going to work. Because there's a problem right there. You're not entrusting yourself to Christ as the King. You know, Jesus doesn't need our permission to be Lord of the universe. He is. And men can do what they want with that right now. 
But the Bible says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ the Lord to the glory of God the Father. The man who denies his lordship now will agree with it wholeheartedly and fully later, just before he is cast into hell forever. And he will never have confusion about it again. I can assure you of that. We considered some of those passages this morning about Jesus' return. I won't go over them again. So knowledge, assent, and trust means wholeheartedly committing oneself to Christ as the prophet and the priest and the king. But there's just one last little question, and that is, what is believing? We've said what saving faith is, but what is believing? And it ought to be apparent at this point that faith is something inside of you. It's something inward. It's the exercise of some inward quality, some inward thing. And it cannot be reduced to a formula or to some outward action. Because if we do that, I submit that we fundamentally change its nature. We undermine and destroy true faith altogether. We lead people down a false path because we hold out something as faith or as a demonstration of faith that is not faith at all. You can walk a hundred aisles and never come to Jesus Christ. You can join a thousand churches and be baptized a million times and never believe on Jesus. And did you know that you can pray the sinner's prayer and you can invite Jesus into your heart and you could have no clue who Jesus is. Because you were never given the accurate proclamation of the gospel. That isn't faith. And I can't tell you that because you prayed a prayer or you did some other thing, or you invited Jesus into your heart when you were four years old, or whatever. I can't tell you that because you did that, you're saved. That you exercised saving faith. And to call that action, that mechanical action, saving faith, is to deceive a man regarding the nature of faith. And potentially... It is to deceive him into thinking that he is right before God when he is in his sins. And that's the worst thing you can ever do. You don't need to walk an aisle. You don't need to pray a little prayer. You don't need to invite Jesus into your heart because that's not the command of the gospel. You need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart with knowledge and assent and trust in Him as a prophet, priest, and a king. And that's something that is inside of you. It's inside of you. And when you do it, by a miracle of divine grace, because it's impossible for a man to do it apart from that, unlike all of these other things that a man can do anytime he wants to, when you do it, 
Your faith will be evident. Not because you signed a card or prayed a prayer and got slapped on the back. Faith is within, but the proof of faith is outside. We know that we've passed from death into life because we love the brethren. We know that we're of God because we keep His commandments. Remember the three believings in the parable we started with? The faith that saves isn't the faith that springs up in the morning and is gone by night. It's not the person who shouts glory, hallelujah, and runs down the aisle and all the other stuff, and then two weeks later can't be found. It's not the faith that started out well, but got tired. Tired of this old Christianity thing. Too much responsibility, too much work. And the cares and riches of this world choked it out. It's the faith that endures to the bringing forth of fruit. And there is an inward aspect, of course, to the assurance of faith. His spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. But I, I can't for you or anybody else, and neither can you. We must deliver the gospel. We must deliver the true gospel. We must preach it powerfully, and we must bring the demands of Christ upon them. And we must urge them to repent of their sins and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we must tell them what that is. But we mustn't tell them that if they'll just come down to the front and kneel at the altar and have a counselor pray with you, that they did it. Because you don't know that. I don't know that. And in fact, having them do that at all, I submit, turns them away from what really needs to happen. It channels them into something they can do rather than confronting them with their own powerlessness and their need to be cast upon divine mercy. Because that's how God saves. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Gospel. We thank You for the truth of Your Gospel. And we thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank You that You have not left us to perish in our sins, but that You've sent Your only begotten Son to deliver us from the wrath that most surely is to come. We pray, Lord, that as we go forth to minister to this lost world, that You enable us to do so with truth, and with a proclamation of the gospel that would be honoring to you, that we would urge men by all means of the danger that they are in, warn them of the wrath that is to come, press upon them the claims of Christ, even command and demand that they believe on you and repent of their sins, but that we would do so in a way that is unmistakably the way of the Word of God. We praise you in the holy name of Jesus Christ.